At its 2013 Emerging Artists Symposium on Plays on June 17th, SDCF hosted legendary director Marshall Mason to speak about his extraordinary collaboration with Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Lanford Wilson, as well as his personal approach to working with actors. Hi, I'm SDCF producing director Ellen Rusconi, and you are listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the American Theatre Wing. We're here with Marshall Mason to speak about collaboration. I am so honored to have Marshall Mason here today. Uh, While theater is full of collaboration and there's no single way to collaborate, Marshall is undisputedly the master. Playbill states that the Marshall Mason and Lanford Wilson uh, director-writer relationship is the longest-standing collaboration in modern American theater, which is a truly extraordinary achievement. He balanced this with directing productions by other playwrights, including William Hoffman, Larry Kramer, all, many, most living, uh, all talented, some I have to assume challenging. <laughs> um, additionally, as founder and, and founding artistic, artistic director of New York Circle Rep Theater, he had many notable cl- collaborations with his co-founders, including Tanya Berezin, with his designers, including John Lee Beatty, with the, a- with the actors and writers, many of whom he discovered, all of whom he created a real home for, um, including Jeff Daniels, now, now names are escaping me, but um, Kathy Bates, uh, uh, William Hurt, Alec Baldwin to some extent. Um, he's among the most influential handful of theater artists of the last 50 years, and he generously offered to be here today. He saw my email and actually emailed me and said, hey, would you like to have me there? So, um, so there's a real generosity of, of, of spirit here. Um, so I'm really, I'm so thrilled to have you here today. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> so there are many places that we could begin. Uh, but let's first talk about your relationship with Lanford. Okay, but before we do that, okay. actually, uh, let me make an opening statement. Sure. It's about collaboration. Um, because this is a subject I, in a sense, suggested that we talk about. And the reason I wanted to talk about it was because the theater is a collaborative art form. By definition, be, uh, well, is it by definition? The theater involves actors, art, uh, uh, directors, playwrights, designers, in our modern theater anyway, uh, and sound designers, uh, lighting designers, set designers, costume designers, music, uh, composers. You know, there's a whole group of people, not even to talk about you know, the business aspects of it where you have to deal with producers and uh, publicity people and uh, on and on and on, the list just goes on. It is a collaborative art. And the director is the chief architect, architect of the, thank you so much, of the collaborative process. And that's why I thought it was a real important uh, thing to discuss a little bit and I was waiting outside. I didn't realize you guys were already in the middle of everything. And I was waiting outside. It got to be 2 o'clock. And nobody came. Nobody. I thought, well, you know, given a, a symposium on collaboration and no director will show up. <laughs> <laughs> Little did I know that you all already captive in here and that uh, I need not have worried. Uh, so, yeah, uh, you want to talk about, uh, we'll begin with the discussion of me and Lampert. Yeah. Um, 
or Lanford and I. No, we'd be anyway. Uh, so just your we, yeah, we 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 met at the Cafe Chino uh, when I went to see his uh, all, all three of his first productions there. We did not know each other, and the fourth time I went was to see a revival of um, already of his first play, which was uh, actually the second production, uh, Home Free. And it was restaged. The first production had been done by Neil Flanagan. It was a beautiful production. And it had now been restaged by uh, William Archibald, who is famous for having written and directed, I guess, the, t- the uh, Turn of the Screw, the adaptation of the James novel for Broadway. And the approach was really, really remarkably different because instead of the magic that the play had had in the first go-round, coming from the actor's studio, <laughs> Mr. Archibald had now created a dreary, dark you know, dungeon of a place where these two kids were inhabited. And also, Lanford had changed the play. The play, you know, you go through this whole play this about these two people play games with each other and have this marvelous uh, imaginative relationship in which they build imaginary uh, furniture of, uh, of, there's a big Ferris wheel on stage. You probably all know the play. I'm wasting my time describing it. In any case, it's a magical kind of thing. And at the end of the play, in the first production that I saw, we discover uh, that they're brother and sister. When she is having pregnancy pains and we realize something is terribly wrong and and the, the brother, insane brother, is agoraphobic and won't leave the house. And so we see Joanna begin to die as the curtain comes down. And it was a real shocker because we knew that she was pregnant. We knew that they were lovers. We knew everything but that we did not know until the very last moment that they were brother and sister. At which point you go, oh, my God. It was incredible. So Lanford, for the revival directed by Mr. Archibald, revised the play and put in the first dialogue that we heard, I mean, within the first two or three sentences, we know that they're brother and sister. So we saw the play through a whole different lens, completely. And so after the performance, which I enjoyed very much, it was still a wonderful play and very well done. Same actors, even the different directorial approach, legitimate, you know, not what I would have done, but legitimate. (laughs) And... uh, so Joe Chino came over to me and said, uh, uh, so how would you like it? And I said, I thought it was terrific, but I liked the first one better. And he said, oh, have you told Lanford? And I said, I haven't met Lanford. He said, you haven't met Lance? Come over here. I said, oh, okay. So I, I followed him over into the corner by the jukebox where sat this guy with this long, floppy hair. This was 1961. You know, it was before it was popular to have long hair. He already had the longish hair. And these blue eyes that stuck out about a foot in front of his face, like Paul Newman, you know, the eyes that scare you, they're so clear and sharp and penetrating. I'm kind of, oh, or you're, you're, uh, Joe said, Marshall, this is Lanford. Lance, this is Marshall. He's seen all your plays. And Lanford, of course, was beaming. Oh, you've seen all my plays, all four of them? I said, yeah. He said, don't you think I've done a great job improving Hotel, I mean, Pumphrey? Uh, uh, and I said, no, I think you've ruined it. Yeah. So we didn't get off to an immediate... <laughs> he explained that he did not want the shock at the end, that he wasn't writing about incest. He was writing about people who create a, a, a world for themselves that is not facing reality. 
and the consequences of that kind of installation. So he thought it was better to put it right up front. Brother and sister, get over it. This is what I'm writing about. And I said, well, it's like defoliating uh, a jungle with an atomic bomb. That's what you've done because, you know, we had the bomb at the beginning of the play and it's hard to see the play through the, the shock. Uh, subsequently, I directed the play at the Cherry Lane Theater in its professional debut. This was, these earlier productions were off-off-Broadway off at the Chino. And um, I had my opportunity to make it magical again. Uh, there was a lot of candlelight. And one of my rival directors who had seen the production my production said, if I had directed that play, I wouldn't let a candle be lit within a mile of the cherry lane because it was so sentimental in his view. In any case, uh, the review said it was a hit, uh, a single to be sure, but nevertheless a definite hit, a solid hit. So this was, however, our second production together. And so the source of your question, how did Lanford and I begin collaborating together, goes back to our first production together, which was Bomb and Gilead which we did at the Café La Mama, ETC, Experimental Theater, dedicated to the playwright and all aspects of the theater, in case you never saw Ellen do her little thing with the bell. That accent got so thick sometimes, <laughs> and other times not at all. Anyway, uh, I, I ran into Lanford one night, one October night. We were wandering around the village uh, f for different reasons. I couldn't sleep. I'm sure he was cruising. But... Um, <laughs> In any case, we ran into each other. It was a cold October night, and I said, let's go have a cup of hot chocolate at Wayland's Drug Store on the corner of 8th, Avenue, 8th Street and 6th Avenue. So we did, and uh, he said, I've just finished my first full-length play. And I said, oh, really? What is it called? He said, Bomb and Gilead. And I said, well, I'd like to read it sometime. And he said, well, what are you doing now? <laughs> I said, that's true. So I followed him back over to the hotel, uh, the, the Broadway Central Hotel, which later fell down, by the way, and became a sort of metaphor for the hotel Baltimore. Um, and I sat on the day bed and read uh, Bomb and Gilead from beginning to end. At that point, it had about uh, 57 characters, I believe. And they were all talking at once. I'd never read anything like it. It was just amazing. He had invented basically a new, a new form in, in which there were simultaneous scenes taking place Nobody had ever done that before, ever. He saw theater as like a three-ring circus, and he thought audiences were capable of taking in more than one story at a time. So he, that's what he did. Later, Robert Altman picked up the idea, and you've all seen Robert Altman's overlapping, which he sort of gets credit for, but he stole it from Lanford. And Tony Kushner, of course. Too. Well, everybody who came <laughs> afterwards. But right. Lanford was the first one who had who had done this simultaneous dialogue and simul uh, overlapping and, and simultaneous scenes. Uh, first one ever. So I read it, and I, as I said, I'd never seen anything like it, uh, all these characters and all these people. And I finished reading it, and I handed it back to him, and I said, it's really quite remarkable. It's like a contemporary lower depths. And you really are going to need a brilliant director to do this play because it was so complicated. So a week went by, and uh, mutual friends of ours, uh, Clarice and, uh, Nelson and uh, Michael Warren Pell, were having breakfast or something with Lanford, and they said, so how did Mar Mar uh, I understand Marshall read the play. How did he like it? Lanford said, oh, he hated it. He hated it. He said, and Michael said, well, I, I thought he told me he liked it really a lot. And Lanford said, well, 
you know, he said it was, uh, Michael said, he, he told me he thought it was the best new play he had ever read. And Lundford said, well, how many new plays has he read? <laughs> and Clarice, who is an author, said, well, all of mine for a start. <laughs> so Lundford said, oh, all right. And uh, so he, Michael, playing the go-between, came back to me and said, Lundford thought you were upset that you didn't like the play. You have to let him know. And so forth. I said, I told him it needed a brilliant director. Didn't he understand <laughs> who I was talking about? So... We, uh, Lanford then came to me at the Chino and said, do you, you know, I understand you really did like the play. Would you, I have a date at La Mama in July, in uh, January. Would you be interested in directing it? And I said, sure. Um, and we first did the play at the actor's studio, uh, uh, in rehearsal for, uh, both Lee Strasberg, who was head of the directing unit, and Harold Clerman, who was head of the playwriting unit. And Lanford and I were both I was in the directing unit. He was in the playwriting unit. So we did two, uh, you know, afternoons at the studio for their critiques. And I got some very useful advice from Lee Strasberg. And uh, uh, and we always were entertained by whatever Mr. Clerman had to say. Believe me, he was a great, <laughs> great, great man. Uh, so we, uh, however, I, I, uh, going back to the first rehearsal, because this is really where it began. Initially, he was suspicious of me in terms of how I had liked his play. I was suspicious of him because I had heard rumors that he interfered with the process, that he, you know, made himself a nuisance during rehearsals and interrupted the director and so forth. And I said, and when he asked me what I was interested in directing the play, I said, yes, on one condition, you will not talk to my actors. I will be the only, if you have anything to say, say it to me, I will communicate with the actors. Because he had a reputation of being intrusive so, so this is where we started not not exactly you know on the same page except that we made a date to meet and talk about the play in the afternoon so the following afternoon or whenever it was uh Lenford said that we met this is his version of it that we met at a coffee shop and that i spent four hours telling him what his play was about now Lenford had a slight tendency toward exaggeration. I don't think it was four hours, but I think it was probably lengthy and I think it was probably in some depth. One of the things I do remember saying to him was, in terms of talking about the play, was that I said, this is about commerce. This is about people exchanging things for value and that it could just as well take place on Wall Street as in these dives on the Upper West Side where the heroin addicts and the whores and the junkies hung out that it wasn't about them it was about commerce and he was astonished because that's exactly what he had himself thought so I told you I, I spent however much time it was he was amazed at, that somebody got his place so thoroughly and so completely so we get to the first rehearsal and at the first rehearsal, I, part of my, my work is dividing the play into beats of action so that the actors from the beginning, if you say something starts here and it goes until this point and then it changes and something else happens. Usually I find beats are about three or four pages long. It can vary. Usually, sometimes they're shorter than that. If they're longer than that, I make a division in the middle anyway just because I don't want my bites uh, to be too large. So... I, I divide the play into beats of action. 
So Lanford, and I'm doing this with all the cats sitting there, I say, okay, on page 21, you know, uh, in, when Dopey says this and this, that begins beat three. And, uh, okay, now look ahead four pages later on, you know, such and such a page, when Darlene says this line, or we see the stage direction, pause, look for stage directions, because stage directions are usually an indication of some kind that maybe something has changed mm -hmm. sometimes, especially a pause or somebody's entrance or somebody's exit. Uh, that's a playwright's way of, of, of having a unit of action. Uh, so I say, look ahead to this page, and, uh, and uh, Lanford sitting there says, oh, I see what he's doing to himself. So he starts looking ahead and saying, oh, I see where the next beat is. And I would say, okay, turn to such and such a page, and it would be exactly where he had, he had, and he started looking ahead, and I'd get the next one, and I nailed it. <laughs> Every time there was a change of action and so forth, I, I got exactly. So what happened as a result of that was that the playwright trusted me and trust is something that has to be earned you can't just say trust me I'm, I, I'm going to do the best I can for your play it was by doing that division into beats that I showed him and also my discussion with him about what the play was about that he really got the sense that I understood his play and that I was devoted to the play and that I was going to do the play the way he saw it uh, and he trusted me and that, be that began a trust that lasted for 40 years uh, and uh, that's why it became the longest-running uh, <laughs> collaboration in history, was because it was based on trust. Did your communication with each other improve from that point? I mean, just to include what? Improve at that from that point because it does seem like well, yeah, it, uh, it, it changed totally. It changed totally. He he came to all the rehearsals, and Lambert's uh, description of it to me was. It was, it was magical watching me interact with the actors. He said it was like you direct with a magic wand. The whole atmosphere in rehearsal is so loving and giving and discovering, and it's just so exciting to watch. He became terribly excited by the rehearsal process. And thereafter, he always came to all the rehearsals, except with the exception of the improvisations. First uh, week, I always spend the, almost the first week of, of a four-week rehearsal period on... Uh, research, which includes in, uh, improvisation, is one of the best ways of doing research. It's not the only way, but it's certainly a very valuable way. Rehearsal as a an improv uh, uh, improvisation as a rehearsal technique, and of course for the playwright that's pretty boring because we're not saying his words. So he kind of pretty soon got the idea. Oh, I can, I'm welcome to all the rehearsals I want to come to, but I don't want to see the improvisations. You do those without me. So he would come at the end of the first four or five days and, and, and join. He'd be there at the first rehearsal, and then once we started with the improvs, second or third day, uh, he would stay away for three or four days and then come back. So he was always part of my rehearsal process there uh, with the actors. He did, uh, eventually I started relaxing in terms of... Uh, not being so paranoid about he was going to talk to the actors or something. After we'd worked for many, many years together, he was there. He was, you know, we had to honestly acknowledge the fact he was in the room. And I was less concerned that he was going to say something. He, by now, he really understood the rehearsal process, and he wouldn't say anything that was going to be detrimental or, or give them too much information when the actors had to do the work or anything like that. And also, he relaxed in terms of Oh, I was not going to change his text or whatever, you know. 
So we, we uh, in the long run, I wrote some of his lines, mm -hmm. you know. The funniest line in 5th of July is mine. <laughs> <laughs> we came up with the moment. It was just at the point when the telephone company had changed their rules. You all, I don't know if you'll remember this because it was, you know, back in the 70s. And, uh, and Susan, uh, 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 it was uh, at that point Nancy Snyder playing Gwen had to come downstage and, and uh, pick up the phone and ask for, you know, and di dial a number for long distance. And we could see her, but it was like mine, you know, and so forth. And I said, Lefford, she's got to say something. And he said, what? And I said, I don't know. Uh, so I told Nancy, say what the fuck for dial one. Because they had just put in the, you got to dial one. Yeah. So, what the fuck for dial one? Lefford said, okay, say that until I think of a good line. Uh, and so he never did think of, he never did concentrate on it again. We get to, you know, the first preview or whatever and, and every performance thereafter, what the fuck for got, dial one got it, the biggest laugh in the show. Always a huge laugh. Uh, so we stopped being so paranoid yeah. because there was a great trust between us. And uh, as a result, uh, uh, the, the, and, and Lanford also, I think one of the reasons for the long, for the length of the collaboration, uh, for the success of the collaboration, was that Lanford was very mindful of wanting to be successful at what he did. He did not want to write movies, he did not want to write television, he wanted to be a playwright. He didn't want to go to Hollywood like Cliff Odets had done, or Bertolt Brecht. He didn't want to get trapped out there and go through the, he hated movies, he thought they, he loved seeing them, but he didn't want to work in them. He thought they were of the devil. They were temptations. <laughs> so he wanted to stay pure and true to his calling, which he felt was writing plays. And uh, as a result uh, of that uh, devotion to, to being a playwright, he was terribly keen on the artistic method, the artistic process. He loved actors more than any playwright I've ever found. He adored actors. Once he began working with me, he began to understand the acting process and that we weren't looking for results until opening night. No results in rehearsal, please. I don't want to see them. I want to see the process. I want to see work. And he began to understand that. And he became very patient as a result. And he began to be really excited by the process and to enjoy it, as many actors do, by the way. A lot of actors, I'm sure you've heard actors say, love rehearsal, hate performing. Because the rehearsal is so exciting. It's full of discovery. And then you just got to do it again and again and again, eight times a week. Other actors really like performing. You know, so it, it's different, different, different people have different uh, feelings about it. But he became very enamored of, he loved actors. He loved artists in general. He was not really interested in uh, the other things, the fame or the glory or the... He wasn't impressed by, by any of that. He was impressed by a person's artistic talent. That really, really, really turned him on. So um, as a result of being having this trust in me, and as a result of the success of his plays, artistically I'm talking about, not, not commercially, but artistically, he was very, I think, wise. He sort of said, we've got something here that works. Let's keep with it. Mm -hmm. So he didn't change directors every uh, play as some, drug, some uh, more uh, uh, pro promiscuous playwrights do. 
Uh, it's not that he never worked with other directors. He did. Uh, he worked with Joey Tillinger later on um, uh, uh, Serenading Louis' second production, and uh, he worked with uh, 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 Jeff Daniels' director, uh, uh, Guy Sandville, out in Michigan after Circle Rep was, was over. So he worked with other directors, but he always preferred coming home, as it were, to my artistic process because my process was what he understood and what he appreciated and what he loved. And he wrote plays, of course, specifically for the actors in the company. Once he, he got into uh, to the opportunity to do that, he took full advantage of it. We started Circle Rep. Uh, the, 1969 was when we did Balm and Gilead. And we started, I'm sorry, 1965 is when we did Balm and Gilead, January of 65. And it was four years later that we started Circle Rep in 1969. But the idea of having a company of actors was Lanford's. He got me together immediately after he saw Bob and Gilead and said, we've got to keep these people together. They're playing ensemble. I've never seen it before. Nobody in America has seen it before since maybe the group theater. We've got to keep these people together. I said, oh, I'm too young to do that. Uh, Joe Chaikin had just done it. I knew down the street they had an open theater. I, I don't want to do that. I was looking to be discovered like Lana Turner at the... <laughs> Uh, I, I had Broadway in mind. That was my goal, where I wanted to, to work. And uh, I didn't want to start in a little off-off Broadway company and, you know, slave away for years and years. Of course, it didn't happen that way. Uh, he, he was right, uh, and eventually that is exactly what happened. We worked together again and again and again, off-off Broadway, Cafe La Mama, Chino, Judson Poets Theater. And we, you know, went from theater to theater with often the same actors. And by the time we got to 1969, we had an informal group of actors who had been working together for five years, really, four years at least. Uh, and we took uh, a group of them to London to do Humphrey and the Madness of Lady Bright over there. Just an interesting footnote, when we got over there, we were the last play, the very last play, that production, to come under the Lord Chamberlain's censorship. <laughs> Britain got rid of the Lord Chamberlain's censorship immediately after Home Free. So we were the very last one to be censored. And guess what they censored? The fact that they were brother and sister. So ultimately I got my way. And it was a big hit in London. Uh, they said it was the finest performance to be seen in London. Came right on the heels of the big disaster of the Actors Studio's Three Sisters over there. And we were very frightened of that. Anyway, uh, so... Uh, the uh, it was a collaboration that okay you asked also were there any uh, uh, difficulties along the way yeah did we ever disagree about casting was one of the things you wanted to know I, I looked at her list of questions by the way I can talk forever and uh, it's hard to get a word in Edgeworth you know so you, you can talk I'll, I'll, I'll give you her questions as well as my answer she, she said did you and Lanford ever disagree on casting the only time that we ever disagreed on casting was the first production. He wanted Neil Flanagan, who had been his director and who had also starred in The Madness of Lady Bright and who was quite brilliant in, in that part, spectacular part, wonderful part. And he wanted uh, Neil to play Fick in Bomb and Gilead. And I had worked for years and coming from Northwestern together with Rob Thurkeld, and I knew what a wonderful actor Rob was and how perfect he would be for the part. So we had a disagreement on the first production. 
not a big, you know, fight them out disagreement, but I said, I, you know, Rob will be better. Neil is wonderful for the spectacular part, but this is a quiet part where nobody should notice him until, like, at the end of the play, you say, is that guy still talking? And Rob was that kind of actor. Neil was kind of a, a flamboyant actor. So we disagreed about it. We reached a compromise. Neil was also, at that time, becoming very popular. So he had some regional theater engagements and what have you. So I said, okay, we'll let Neil play the part. But I know I, we knew that in a two-week engagement, he was going to be out for four or five different performances. And I said, so Rob will understudy. So he'll play the stranger which is a small part, not very rewarding part, and he will understudy uh, Fick so that when Neil is out, he can, he can fill in. So that's exactly what we did. It was a compromise, and, and uh, Neil was terrific in the part. He was just fine, uh, and Rob was astonishing. So much so that Lanford then turned around and wrote Skelly in the Rhymers of Eldridge specifically for Rob. So, you know, again, that... One little disagreement that had a very glorious result. And, by the way, is a good example of how Lanford started writing for actors before there was Circle Rep. He wrote specifically with, with, with uh, Rob in mind for that. And of course, subsequently, Rob and Tanya, uh, who was married to Rob, and I started this theater um, in 1969. Uh, and uh, Lanford... Was at that point was doing a play. He was doing Lemon Sky up at the Buffalo Studio Arena and was out of town for most of our first year. So he didn't really participate in the theater the way the, the other writers like Doric Wilson and, and uh, Corinne Jack, uh, not Corinne, uh, 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 David Starkweather, uh, Barilla Kerr, who subsequently has a, an award for playwrights, and writers of, of Helen Duberstein Lipton. They were the writers that we had at the, in that first year. And Lanford hung around the theater. He designed the first set for us, for example. You know, he's a, in addition to his uh, expertise as a writer, he also was very much into design. So he was around and did participate, but his plays were not, they were not something that was right for the company. He didn't write it with us in mind, and so he took it to the studio arena and it uh, came in to, off, to Broadway or off-Broadway from there with Christopher Walken, and uh, it was a terrific production, lovely, and it closed in a week, as had his Gingham Dog, which had been a failure on Broadway. It had also closed in a week. Alan Scheider uh, directing, uh, following my very successful off-Broadway production of it uh, just a couple of years before. Anyway, um, we, we did not uh, disagree about things very much. It was like having two heads with the same ideas or, or, or slightly different perspective. I talk about in my book, uh, I stopped by the drum display service on my way here because I, I, I have friends who are opening a, a couple of nights from now and I'm going to give them this as an opening night present. Stopped by, they only had one. And the guy, guy said, it's because we're selling them so fast. I said, oh, yeah. Uh, my publisher doesn't seem to know about this, nor do I. Uh, so you, I must ask you all to go by the drama place service, this is bookshop and say, where's Marshall's book? I want it. You know. They promised they, they would have some more very shortly, but not in time for my Wednesday uh, gift. Um, and I talk a lot about 
collaboration in the book, and it's got some lovely pictures in the middle that uh, even if you're bored with what I write, you can look at the pictures. Um, one of the things that I uh, talk about, one of the reasons I wrote the book was to see if I could identify principles of directing that all directors shared, regardless of how differently we all approach things, and God knows we all approach it differently, and as we should. We're all different people, and and uh, we have to direct in, our, in terms of our own personality. Um, so I came up with uh, uh, eight rules, uh, 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 which I'm going to quickly just go through just to show you how valuable the advice in the book is. <laughs> Good direction grows from an original, inspired conception. Anybody disagree with any of these? Stick up your hand. I want to see them because uh, we, we can argue about them. Good direction grows from an original, inspired conception. A basic element of directing is clear communication. A director's approach create, expresses a unique personality. That's why I say we all do it differently because we're all different people. The director's work should be invisible, coming to life as if no other version were conceivable. See the director's hand, it's not a good thing. You've got to say, this is the way it was meant to be. Anyway, good directing benefits from preparation. Any of you want to say, no, no, I like going winging it. That's my inspiration. Uh -uh. Inspiration comes from good preparation. Careful scheduling contributes to arti achieving artistic goals. I'm a director who puts that out that re entire rehearsal schedule from the first rehearsal, first day of rehearsal, I give it to my actors. This is what, when we're going to be rehearsing. This is what we're going to be rehearsing. If you're not called that day, you don't have to come. We're going to work on beats. We're not going to be running through the play endlessly, not discovering anything except our, how to say our lines. Uh, so uh, uh, I carefully schedule my rehearsals so that everybody knows what it's going to be and there are no doubts about it. I think it, it, it contributes to an actor feeling free and, and creative. Directing is a collaborative enter enterprise dependent on shared creativity. And uh, I've got a, foot, uh, not a, a further explanation of that is mindful of the needs of actors, a director should establish a safe, creative environment in rehearsals where experimentation is not ridiculed but valued. The goal of rehearsals is to stimulate, not inhibit, creativity. So that, and uh, finally, uh, direction, uh, directions should always be as specific as possible. So my eight rules, generate an original inspired conception, communicate your ideas clearly, use an approach that is suited to your personality, prepare thoroughly, Schedule the available time to achieve your goals. Collaborate to achieve group creativity. Establish a stimulating rehearsal atmosphere. And make your directions as specific as possible. I'm too short of Ten Commandments, but I'm sure I've overlooked a couple. Maybe they'll occur to you. <laughs> so there's my eight ideas that I think are common to all directors' work. And once we have those, then you can figure out how you can best accomplish those things. Maybe you don't want to break the play down into beats as I've done. Maybe you, 
you know, uh, there's a great director of, uh, uh, oh, uh, the original Summer Smoke, come on guys, uh, uh, Summer Smoke, uh, um, this is what happens with age. The great, 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 Jose, Jose thank you. Jose, who directed nothing at all like I do. A great director. But he was all about mood and I don't know. I don't know what it was, but he he spiritualized performances out of his actors. Kazan got them and took them off and huddled quietly in the corner and talked to them very privately. I do mine quite publicly because I always think maybe something I have to say to somebody might be of interest to somebody else. Try not to be too you know, harsh or critical in public, but but if I say, you know, uh, you really need to concentrate more in that moment, somebody else might be able to say, oh, yeah, I need to do that too. So I do mine in a more public fashion than Kazan did. So we all have different personalities. We all have very different approaches, but they all probably need to feed into those eight principles that I uh, uh, have found that I think, you know, are the basis of, of uh, a collaborative art. I would like to, uh, if there are there any more questions about working with the playwright? You asked if there were other writers who were difficult. Certainly, Lanford was my ideal collaborator. I mean, I, I, it was a joy to work with. We never, did we ever have a disagreement? No, never. Uh, I want, I'll take it back only to this degree. There was one instance late in our uh, uh, working together uh, when he wrote a play called Redwood Curtain. And... I thought, because of the nature of the play, it's about a Vietnamese, half-Vietnamese girl looking for her American father. And um, because of that, I thought, gosh, you know, a, a, an Eastern theater approach to this might be quite interesting to do because they're not so representative. They're, they're, they challenge you to use your imagination and to see the magic of, of you know, simple staging. Uh, so that was going to be my approach. That was my take on a concept for the play. Lanford said, no, 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 I want it realistic. I don't want an abstract production. I want it real. So John Lee Beatty dutifully and I said, okay, if that's what you want, you know, that's what I'm going to give you. So John Lee Beatty designed, I don't know if any of you saw it, the most incredibly beautiful set of a, rain, uh, of a redwood forest that... Uh, you know, changed in the middle uh, when she starts performing her magic. The trees all started moving and turned around into the house where she's there with the piano, and it was truly magical. Just as beautiful a set as I've ever seen on Broadway. It was truly magic. It completely overwhelmed this little three-character play. And later, we had the chance to do the play uh, at a conference up in Valdez, Alaska where we had no set or anything, and I just used tables like this one. I put the table up on its end, and these tables on their ends constituted the trees. You know, and we had a piano on stage, and suddenly you notice, oh, there's a piano there. And it didn't matter that it was in the forest because it was all abstract anyway. And the play came through so clearly. And, you know, I said, I shouldn't have let you talk me into that. You know, I was, I, that was a mistake. There's a times that you should fight for your vision, and uh, I, as I say again, as usual, I was right and he was wrong. Uh, but that's the only time that, that we had a disagreement that I can recall. And that wasn't a big de deal. It was just I, I gave in where I probably should have fought him yeah. and didn't. 
Um, so what were your collaborations like with those? Uh, with the other playwrights. Uh, the only, uh, you know, I had a great time with Larry Kramer, believe it or not. I mean, Larry was an angel. Just we had a great time together. Uh, Jill Pfeiffer, it was uh, just, you know, he saw Hot Al Baltimore, and that's why he asked me to direct uh, Knock Knock, which was my Broadway debut. And uh, he was just in love with uh, with my work and with me, and we, we, we worked very, very well together. Um the only one that I really can point to that was difficult in terms of an author collaboration was the late, great Romulus Lenny. And it was this odd situation because, like as with Lanford, he was there throughout my rehearsals and he'd written a, a, a poetic play about Lord Byron called Child Byron. was starring William Hurt and, and Lindsay Krauss uh, with uh, Tanya Berezin in it and Nancy Snyder and Jeff Daniels. It was a lovely, lovely uh, play. Uh, and uh, I'm sorry, Jeff wasn't in that one, but anyway. Uh, he was there throughout re the rehearsal process. And at the end of every rehearsal, I would turn to him and say, you know, I'd have given my notes to the, to the cast. He'd watch the whole... He was sitting there grinning ear to ear throughout the whole rehearsal process. He loved it. And at the end of each rehearsal, I'd turn to him and say, you know, anything you want to add? Happy, happy, happy. Then we opened. <laughs> and the reviews came in. The reviews said, William Hurt is magnificent. What a magical movie star he is. And he's just, you know, mesmerizing, but... What a shame he hasn't got a play to work with. It's just a dull, usual, Laromulus Lenny kind of half-assed thing. And he turned on a dime. Suddenly, everything was our fault. You know. So it wasn't difficult working with him, but it was, it was hard to, to take that he, he really blamed us. You had that fucking movie star come in and, you know, he, <laughs> he had been delighted in the rehearsal room, but when the reviews singled him out, it was suddenly a different story. And William Hurt was somebody who you had worked with a lot, so yes, you yes. weren't bringing in stars. No, no, he was, our, he was our creation. I'm glad you asked that because that pre presents me with the uh, transition I wanted to have here, <laughs> which is that collaboration, of course, is not just with the writer. And uh, I, I, I certainly would like to talk a little bit about the other types of collaboration that a director goes through. Um, particularly with actors. Uh, I, m my joy of working with actors and of their joy of working with me and with each other throughout the uh, 18 years that I was uh, artistic director at Circle Rep and beyond when I came back to Circle Rep to do work even after I had uh, was no longer the artistic director after Tanya had taken over. Um, the joy of collaboration with actors is so wonderful. It's just, it's, it's the best reason to be a director. Your work is only visible through them. Only visible through them. So it's extremely important that the moves that you find are moves that are collaboratively discovered. You see that an actor needs to move and you say, why don't you go to the window? And, out of, and that's a collaboration. The actor has no trouble going to the, to the window because there was a need to move, he felt it, and you've just provided the, the solution. But a move that, that then that, that actor goes to the window is not a move that he was assigned 
It started with him. So you find the impulse in the actor and then you decide where it's going to look best in terms of the... But you don't discuss this with the actor. You don't say, it's really, I need to see your face during this part or, you know, uh, you need to counter-cross because somebody else is over here. Those are real things that we directors have to think about, but don't talk to the actors about it. I don't even use terms like move upstage or downstage. I use uh, uh, motivative uh, blocking. By that I mean movement that comes out of motivation. Go to the window. You need a drink. So you said, tell that to the actor, he goes to the bar. Uh, you want to uh, get out of this conversation, so look out the window. Uh, face her. Face her. It's important at this point, which will bring them you know, face-to-face maybe. So, so working with the actor's needs and motivations... The, act, the, the director really has to, uh, you have to triangulate three things. There's the needs of the play, which are uh, in terms of movement, which are expressed in the stage directions. They kiss. She slaps him. Uh, he ignores her. Pause. All these wonderful things that, that stage director, uh, you know, that, that the writers write in. And if at all possible, you should honor those because the writer, after all, is the initial creator and you're trying to, to give the, the writer the play that he or she has written. I hope. Initially, at least. The first production. So, what are the needs of the play? If they must kiss, they have to be close together, right? You can't have one actor and one side of the stage. So, it's given by the script that they, you've got to find a way to get the actor's in a position where they're intimate. Second thing is the needs of the actors, which I already went on about, so I won't, won't reopen that issue. Triangulation. What, the needs of the play, the needs of the actors, and finally, the needs of the audience. We have to be able to see. We have to be able to see the story unfold. There is a narrative being told in terms of movement that you, as the director, are the sculptor of. You are the sculptor of motivated movement so that the audience understands and follows the story in a narrative. Uh, of course, I'm talking about narrative theater here. But even in, in non-narrative theater, if it's imagistic, there's still uh, always some kind of relationship between cause and effect. It's just the way the human mind works. And even if if that relationship is a gestalt, it's still important for you as the director to be aware of, you know, that the stage is balanced, that there's a, uh, that an important entrance is, you know, we know the principles, uh, an upstage entrance from this side of the stage down this way is a very strong entrance uh, because somehow we read from left to right and therefore going that direction produces a certain kind of effect, whereas an entrance from this side going against it produces, in a way, a stronger effect because it violates your normal sense. So these are principles that you learn in directing school or whatever. And, and they're, they're important. They're important to know these things. Uh, uh, in, a, in, a, in a camera situation, you move in for a close-up for an important moment, right? Because you want to be able to see the actor in her thoughts and so forth. On stage, 
it's almost always the reverse. You want, you want to put the actor up stage center so that everybody turns to, to that person and you get the focus on the person that the camera get, does uh, in close-up, but that on stage, up center is the, is the strongest uh, position. I had a, one moment in Hotel Baltimore, uh, in, uh, sorry, uh, Tally Swally, in which uh, uh, when Judd Hirsch was originally playing it also in the other... I've, I've done the play nine times. Uh, but uh, whenever I worked with John Lee's set, I asked John Lee to give me a um, one uh, piece of plank that stretched out sort of into the audience like, like this in, in relation to the audience. This is the stage. And, you know, it, it, it pushed out. And we didn't use it. Judd kept wanting to go out there, of course. And the actor would. You know, I kept saying, no, no, no not, not yet, not yet, not yet. So we stayed on stage throughout the whole play and so forth. And finally we get to the point where he's telling the story of his past, which centers around his sister being killed for a political reason by the French government. And it has destroyed him to the extent that he has sworn he will never bring a child into this world to be murdered. Unknown, unknown of course, that Sally has this matching, which is what the beauty of the play. So I wanted this there so that Judd could come out on it and in a B, the closest to the audience, she's upstage watching him at this point, but he is, you know, it's as close as I could get to a close-up in which he cannot face her. It's so deep, it's so important, it's so private that it's only him and the audience, you know working out this moment. Subsequently, the last time I heard the play was with Richard Schiff, who was quite brilliant in the role. He was amazing. Uh, but he's a television actor, right? West Wing. And uh, he... he uh, we were at tech rehearsal, and we were to the point where, you know, he had gone out on the thing, was standing there, and we were waiting for the lights to adjust and so forth, and I walked by and I said, Richard, this is your close-up. <laughs> don't tell me that! I've had directors fired for telling me where the camera is. I don't want to know that. You know, because he's a very <coughs> sensitive artist. You know, working in a television world where people are maybe not quite so sensitive as I am. I, of course, was destroyed by, you know, his reaction. I was just trying to help him. Didn't, didn't mean to make him feel uptight. Didn't know that he would have that kind of reaction. So, you know, you never know when you're being helpful and when you're not. But um, the the relationship to actors is a, is a you know can be a beautiful thing, and I urge you to love actors. There, Elise Strasberg told me when I was working uh, at the actor studio, the best piece of advice he ever gave me, and it's, 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 I quote it in the book here: "If an actor is not giving you what you want." It is never because they don't want to give it to you, but they don't know how to. So the collaboration for the director is to help the actor find how to do that. What is it inside that makes it necessary for it to come up with a certain result? If you demand the result and the actor doesn't get it from the inside, it's phony and, and you won't be happy with it even though you got what you asked for. It won't be what you really needed. Mm-hmm. So collaboration with actors is, is to me, just the, the reason I, I love directing. 
in the past tense there because I'm retired now and no longer love it. <laughs> I'm happy as hell to not be directing anymore. <laughs> um, and then there's the issue of designers. Uh, uh, I, 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 before I move from actors, I did want to mention particularly my relationship to William Hurt was so remarkable and special. He just, we just fit like a hand in a glove to use the cliche. It was remarkable. And I knew immediately after I'd worked with Bill on uh, the first production that we did, which was a Corinne Jacker play called My Life, and, and Bill won a, uh, an O before it, that I had found my Hamlet. Always wanted to do Hamlet, but you know, don't have auditions for Hamlet. <laughs> you better have somebody in mind that you that is, that is going to be able to collaborate with you because if ever there was a collaboration necessary, it is in a play like Hamlet where the where the director and the and the actor must see absolutely eye to eye, must explore the play together, must you know it's it's just there is and the same thing is true by the way of Cyrano uh, as well. There are a number of roles like that that you know you better not do auditions for. You better have somebody in mind, and that somebody had better really, really be uh, in your head, and and you in their head. So that that's really important. That's part of your vision. Yeah. I'm, I'm just time wise. Yeah. You need to. Uh, I have to go. Oh my God. Just okay. I really do because I, I have to be somewhere at three thirty. Um, and I wanted to take some questions too, and I will. Just I'll just stay another ten minutes. Uh, about designers, John Lee Beatty, of course, was is not only the greatest designer of our time, uh, and I discovered him modestly. But okay, but um, our relationship in terms of, of a, a director having a concept and John Lee being able to put that into practice was really remarkable. Uh, I, again, I, I think I tell the story in this book um, of uh, when we were doing the mound builders, and Lanford had no idea what the what it was supposed to look like. He was just writing the words, and he knew the sound was very important. And I read the play, and uh, you know, this manuscript was saying, "I don't know what it needs to be. I really don't have any images yet." And uh, when I met with John Lee, and so usually I am able to come up with some things for him. Uh, and uh, I, I didn't have much. I don't know what I said to him, but whatever I said, it wasn't much. So he went away, and a, a week later, we had a, uh, a production meeting, and by the, in the intervening week, it had all come to me, clear as day, like in a dream. And I said, and so here we are at a production meeting, everybody's sitting, sitting around the table, and, I, and I'm going on and on about it needs to be, you know, on a raked stage and there needs to be two uh, elements and it needs to look like a shipwreck or something and there needs to be a big screen behind and, and at late in the play when they're searching for the bodies, uh, there should be searchlights, you know, that are on poles around the stage and we need to be able to project the, you know, what the, he's looking at slides and we need to be able to see those projected onto the screen behind them so that it's like... The still images become live when the actors step out of them, you know, and so forth. So I've gone into great detail, right, at this point, and suddenly I stopped and noticed that John Lee had this big black portfolio sitting by him. I said, oh my God, I, now am I going to be embarrassed? I said, I, uh, John Lee, I, I see that you have your portfolio. Do you have, have you done any sketches or something? And he said, yes. I said, could we see them? And he said, 
Yes. And he pulled out exactly what I had just described. <laughs> you really had a team. Miraculous. Yeah. I mean, it was the second, not the second time we had worked together, uh, but but one of the early times. Our, we first worked together on a, on a play called uh, Come Back Little Sheba uh, out at the Queen's Playhouse with Jan Sterling in the, in the lead. And uh, that was... Uh, before that, that that was when we really connected, you know, because I said I want the dark at the top of the stairs, I want this big flight of stairs, and I want to be able to walk behind it. And a lot of stuff that John Lee subsequently became famous for, we really started in that first collaboration on, on Sheba. Uh, I also had a wonderful collaboration always. Dennis Parrishy and I went to Northwestern together, and I studied the same lighting designer teacher that he had. So we were able to talk about lighting, you know, like roommates. It was, you know, I I didn't have to talk much to him because he was such a, he's such a genius and he, his use of color and of, uh, he was one of those first people who really followed people around, you know, uh, so so that you'd be in a totally dark room, but somehow you were able to see the actor. How he did that, I don't know. I went uh, once to see a play uh, off Broadway uh, by Atoll Fulgard uh, called um, Road to Mecca. And I got there very late. I was uh, just as the house lights were going down. I got into into my seat. I mean, oh, I just made it. The lights come up. The play starts, and I'm sitting there going, "Oh my God, this lighting! It's incredible. It's it looks like Dennis Parrishy. You know, there's somebody else. Maybe somebody else. Somebody, there's another genius in the theater. And of course, at the intermission, I looked at the. It was Dennis Parrishy. <laughs> you know, just some uh, astonishing work. And I love. He was. Uh, I call him my genius, my, my artistic genius, because his, his work was so tied into mine. For costumes, I had two, two great designers, Laura Crow and uh, originally Jennifer von Meyerhauser. Uh, and I basically, since I was, had you know, a, an abundance of, of uh, riches there, I began to really realize that Jennifer was especially extraordinary with colors. And therefore, whenever I did a contemporary play, I would try to use Jennifer because, you know, the clothes are pretty ordinary, but the colors are real important. If I did a period play, uh, Laura was very adept at, at period stuff. So I kind of divided it that way, and I went back and forth between the two designers depending on what I uh, was working on. And I, did, I had the same thing with the set designers, by the way. If I had wonderful ideas about the set, but nothing specific. If I just had feelings about it, John Lee was the one I should turn to because he came up with these wonderful things that were just exactly what it, what it needed to be. If, on the other hand, I knew exactly what I wanted, and I mean really, you know, I want this and I want this, I want there to be a window here, I want there to be, uh, you know, if I knew, I would use David Potts because David had no, he didn't have an ego problem with that. You want the window there? That's where I'll put the window. So And he and I worked extremely well together. So if I knew what I wanted, I'd go with David. If I knew what it should be but didn't know what it should be, John Lee was my answer. And finally, uh, the collaboration with Chuck London, who invented sound design as we know it today. And I know Al Gore got laughed at for saying he invented the, the Internet, but truly Chuck London really did because before Chuck... Sound was done with, you know, that you, you bought a record and you put it on backstage and it was from some tinny little speaker from the house speakers or something. And uh, the, uh, when, when Lanford wrote um, uh, Mound Builders, as I said, he knew that the sounds were going to be really important. So Chuck had a, a soundtrack 
for the action that was the first time uh, sound had been used in that way. And it was all original. Everything, he, he went out and recorded the crickets. He went out and, you know, the same thing with Tally's Folly. He went out and got a jet band from New Jersey to play Lindy Lou and so forth and so forth. So Chuck really invented uh, sound design and Lanford wrote uh, his plays with, uh, in mind that he had that collaborative partnership with, with Chuck and that we could rely on Chuck to come up with wonderful, wonderful stuff. Uh, when I did Knock Knock and Jules Pfeiffer had the voices of Joan coming from all over the, the house and Chuck put little speakers all over the stage, you know, so the sound became a character, uh, more than one character, a bunch of different voices. So that was also a tremendously valuable thing. Uh, I wish I had words of wisdom about dealing with producers and all that. But I don't. It's alas just a burden that directors have to bear. And the only thing I can say is try to keep it away from the creative team as much as possible. Don't let the actors know when the critics are coming. Don't let the actors know that you know the producer hates them or wants you to replace <laughs> them or whatever. You know, you, you have to fight those battles uh, that, that are quite frequent, unfortunately. Uh, but you have to fight them, keep them out of the rehearsal uh, creativity because uh, it's just, that's your uh, create, creative place, that's your womb, that's your, what do they call it when you hatch a bird and, uh, uh, what? Incubator? Yes, exactly. So, incubator. So don't let these outside problems uh, come in and interfere. You'll have your hands full just trying to, you know, you, use your collective imaginations in the most positive and beautiful way. So, uh, a couple of quick questions that I can give quick, quick answers to. Yes? Um, what about collaboration with other directors and assistant directors? How does that work? Uh, directors, uh, I uh, never use an assistant director as a gopher. To me, they're an important collaborative part of the team. Uh, and uh, I, I have a weakness. Costumes is my weakness. And I really count on my assistant director to keep an eye on wh whether the shoes really go. As far as I'm concerned, if, if the actor is happy and the costume designer is happy, I tend to be happy. But fortunately, I can count on my assistant director to say, the actor's happy and the costume designer is happy, but that looks awful. <laughs> and, I, and I say, oh, oh, I, I, I hadn't noticed. You know, I'm looking at your shoes. I don't mean your shoes look awful. <laughs> they're just so, they're so, you know, I'm pointing at them because they're, they're standing out. Uh, so, you know, I wouldn't notice those shoes or, or care. And Rand would either say, oh, those are so perfect, or no, they're, they're not. So I, I worked with, uh, I ended up with Rand Mitchell as my assistant for 20 years. And he was an older man than I am. He's about 10 years older than I am. And he was a director, uh, did a lot of, uh, as an actor, he did a lot of uh, Beckett. And I really counted on him. Uh, and I've had other assistants that also have been valuable to me, but none quite, uh, you know, he, I really count on him. Yes? You had mentioned about actors and, and getting them in the process, not going for results. When you do have actors that seem to continually go for results, yes. how do you handle that with them and, and get them back to the process? Uh, that's a long, complicated okay. answer that I probably don't have time for. Uh, I would say try to avoid casting such an actor. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, really, uh, if you... If, yeah, in the audition. I look for people who are not going to give me a result, but I, I sort of see, oh, this is how they're going to approach it. Ilya Kazan says, all casting is tight casting in the sense that you are looking for the inner river of experience that the actor identifies with the role. 
So that's what you're looking for, not the result, but the inner river of experience that connects the actor so that he or she will be able to investigate from within and use it imaginatively. That's a hard thing with producers, though. Yeah, yeah it is, but, uh, you know, yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, um, you're uh, justly famous as a naturalistic director, but the uh, kind of environment you started out in, the Chino Mama, very right with uh, Brent Dartell. How did that inform uh, all kinds of, you know, I, I, I got, <laughs> I am unfairly uh, thought of as a realistic director because I've done everything all over the, the map. Uh, one of my greatest productions in terms of, of reception and stuff was something I did at La Mama early on called A Coffee Ground Among the Tea Leaves, which was written by a black playwright. Uh, and it, it was a, an absurdist drama worthy of Genet. You know, I mean, really, really far out, and I couldn't possibly tell you what it was about at this point. I don't even know if I knew then, but it was quite a remarkable, you know, production. Uh, I've done Shakespeare. Uh, I've done musicals. They all benefit from real performances. That is to say, you have to believe. You have to believe Hamlet. You got to believe Mary Poppins. You know, and so. The process is really the same, except with a musical, you also have to schedule in. They're going to have music rehearsals. They're going to have choreography, dance rehearsals. They're going to, so they're, it's just more complicated. Preferably, you need a little longer time so that you can do all the work you need to do uh, and at the same time give the other uh, collaborators, the choreographer and the music director, the time they need and the actors the time they need to sing and to dance. So uh, it, it's a matter of using your schedule, you know, your time wisely, but I don't, I don't think it's any different. I think it's the same, whether it's a realistic play or an abstract play uh, or a musical or Shakespeare or Mary Stewart, which I love directing. Um, so uh, you can adapt it. And again, I talk about that in here. I'm really pushing the book, aren't I? <laughs> it, it will do you good to read it, I promise you. And I've got to go. I've got to uh, an appointment. I'm really sorry I have to run away. Thank you for listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members, and generous funding from the NEA, the New York State Council on the Arts, and the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council.